You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And since this is a short passage, if you're able to do so, please stand as we hear God's word. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. God, speak to us now this morning through your word. Help us to understand the great advantage of living on the side of the cross, that we see the ultimate revelation in Jesus. Help us not to seek false and empty spiritualities, the con games that go on in our world that are advertised as having anything to do with you. God, help us to love and cherish Christ and your most holy word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How can we learn the answers to the ultimate questions in life? How can we learn about spiritual realities? How can we understand the purpose of existence? How can we reliably know who we are and what we ought to do? Our world is filled with answers. Buddhism says that we can find the answers within as we pursue the emptying of the mind. The New Age movement says that we can hear answers from angels by becoming attuned to cosmic vibrations through crystals. The Quakers teach that God is in everyone and we all have an inner light which reveals God's truth to us personally. Islam Mormonism, Pentecostalism, and many cults today present us with a smorgasbord of new prophets who offer alleged revelations that are supposed to somehow connect us with the divine. But the Bible tells us we don't need to go after crystals or angels. We're not going to find the answers in ourselves or in some false prophet out there somewhere. The Bible tells us that real answers about ultimate questions exist because God has revealed those answers to us. 
because God has spoken. And we're going to see this morning, God has spoken authoritatively in Scripture, and God has spoken supremely by revealing Himself in Jesus, God who has taken on human flesh and dwelt in our midst. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we continue our study in the book of Hebrews, the self-disclosure of God. Now, we introduced this book of Hebrews last week, and here's what we said last week, if you weren't with us. The author of Hebrews, someone that we don't know who he was, is writing to a church of professing Christians who seemed unsteady in their faith because they had neglected their spiritual lives. And as a result, they were spiritually drifting away from Christianity back towards Old Covenant Judaism, the religious practices required by the Old Testament. And they thought this was a smart move because they thought it would insulate them from persecution. But our author is writing to these folks saying, no, 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 stay in the Christian faith and hold fast your confession in Jesus. And he says this is why they should do that, because Jesus is better than everything in Old Covenant Judaism. Because the forms of Judaism anticipated the coming of Jesus and are incomplete and meaningless without him. Now today we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 to 4. And in this first part of this book, our author is going to contrast the revelation God gave in the Old Testament with the revelation that God gave in his Son. And he's going to show us that Jesus is better. And we'll see that today in two points. First... God has truly disclosed himself in the Old Testament writings. And second, God has supremely and definitively disclosed himself in the person of Jesus. Let's start with our first point. God truly disclosed himself in the Old Testament writings. Look at verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets central declaration of this passage is that God has spoken. And this truth overturns four popular lies in our world today. Atheism, which says there is no God. Agnosticism, which says we cannot know whether God exists. Deism, which says God built the world and then walked away, being disinterested in what happens here. And relativism, which says that spiritual reality is unknowable. And so each of us can come up with our own concept, and all of our ideas are basically equal. But Hebrews 1 says, no, no, no. God has spoken. So there is a God. Atheism is false. And this God is knowable because he has revealed himself to us. So agnosticism is false. And this God is not detached or distant. He speaks to us, summoning us into a relationship with himself. And so deism is false. And because God has spoken, spiritual reality can be understood in terms of objective truth. There are right and wrong answers about spiritual questions. Those answers that conform to God's truth are correct, and those that don't aren't. So relativism is false. Friends, God is there, and thankfully he has chosen not to leave us in the darkness of ignorance, instead he has chosen to reveal himself to us that we might trust in him. But how has God spoken? 
Well, God has revealed himself generally to all people in nature. Romans 1 verse 20 says, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Nature testifies to the reality of God. We can observe that something exists rather than nothing and that the universe had a beginning. And if we reason about that, we can ultimately deduce that there must be one uncaused cause who set all things into motion, an uncreated creator, eternal and all-powerful. Nature can get us that far, but it cannot bring us to salvation because general revelation cannot communicate the good news of the gospel to us. You will not learn that Jesus died for your sins by studying the clouds or by looking through a microscope. General revelation can teach us much, but it cannot save. In fact, Paul says it only condemns because it deprives us of an excuse. Friend, when you and I stand before God on the last day, we will not be able to plead ignorance and say, well, I didn't know you were there, God. Nature testifies that he is. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Their voice goes out throughout, the all, uh, throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In our hearts, we all know God is there. But what do fallen sinful people do with God's natural revelation? We reject it. Romans 1.21 says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and animals. Instead of being drawn to God by the truth of general revelation, people suppressed the truths that nature revealed. And we concocted our own false stories and spiritualities to try to avoid reckoning with God, whether we call that paganism or evolution. Over thousands of years, it's the same old nonsense. People spiraling into darkness, folly, and ruin. But praise God, He has not left us in this miserable, wretched state because He has gone further than simply giving general revelation. He has also given what theologians call special revelation. God has revealed himself specifically to his people, and that's what our passage today is about. God revealing himself specifically across history. And today's passage tells us God's revelation can be divided into two eras. God's revelation in the distant past and God's recent final revelation. Now, verse 1 speaks about God's revelation in the distant past. And it says, now, way back then, God spoke to our fathers. Who are these fathers? Well, our author's talking about ancient Israel, the Israelites who heard God's word. Many responded with faith and obedience, like the believers who are named in Hebrews chapter 11. Many responded with wicked unbelief, like the wilderness generation that we'll meet in Hebrews 3 and 4. Whoever these Israelites were, believing or unbelieving, though, our author calls all of them our fathers. Perhaps he does this, he chooses this language, because many of his original readers were Jewish. 
But I don't think that's necessarily right because in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes to a Gentile church, and Paul says even Gentile believers can consider the Israelites our ancestors. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. All believers can see ancient Israel as our ancestors in one way. Because Christianity is the completion, it is the capstone to Judaism. And we all, regardless of ethnicity, can and should learn from the lives of those who came before us, believing and unbelieving alike. 1 Corinthians 10.6 says, These things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. All right, so God spoke to the Israelites. But how did he speak to them? Now Hebrews 1.1 says, By the prophets. When we think about the prophets, we usually think of the writing prophets, like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel. But Judaism has a much wider definition of prophet than we do. You might not know this, but the Jewish arrangement of the Old Testament is different than ours. It's broken into three sections, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. Same books, different order. And this section called the prophets doesn't just have Isaiah and the minor prophets and so forth. It also includes the books we call the historical books. Joshua and Judges and 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. See, the prophets in the Jewish way of thinking are not just the writing predictive prophets. They are all those leaders who heard from God and spoke God's word to God's people, whether they were kings or generals or judges or the prophets as we know them. And so when verse 1 says, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, our author is speaking comprehensively about all the revelation God gave to ancient Israel through its various leaders. He's talking about all of the revelation recorded in the Old Testament. So what then does verse 1 say about the Old Testament? That its revelation was given at many times and in many ways. The Old Testament did not fall from the sky as a completed systematic theology textbook. Its contents were given by God through many leaders across thousands of years in various lands ranging from Egypt to Persia. And that revelation God gave back then was not comprehensive. That is to say, God did not explain everything to the first people all at once. Rather, God gave fragmentary, progressive revelation. He gave a bit of truth here and there. And as time went by, he gave more and more truth that clarified what came before. Let me give you an example. Let's think about the prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. Right after the fall, in Genesis 3, God said, One is coming who is going to set things right, the seed of the woman, he is called. Around 1800 B.C., sometime later, in Genesis 49, we learn that this coming figure will be a descendant of Judah. 800 years later, in 2 Samuel 7, we learn he will be the descendant of David. 300 years later, in Isaiah 9, we learn that he won't just be a human king, he will also be God incarnate. The pieces of the whole given over time that are increasingly clear. 
Yet while Old Testament revelation was progressive, it was still obscure. Numbers 12, 6, God says, If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. But God says with prophets other than Moses, he did not give such clarity. The disclosures were riddle-like. 1 Peter 1.10 says, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. The final picture was not clear to them. I don't know anybody in here likes working jigsaw puzzles. I don't. My wife does. Um, but if you work a puzzle upside down, it's kind of like this. You could kind of figure out a few parts of the shape, but you've got no idea what the whole picture looks like on the other side. So God's Old Testament revelation was fragmentary, it was progressive, it was obscure. It was also diverse. We're told that it came in many ways. It didn't follow one uniform pattern. So God spoke to Joseph in a dream, to Moses in a burning bush, to Israel through the law, to Gideon through the morning dew, to da through David in the Psalms, to Elijah in a still small voice. God gave Isaiah visions, he gave Jeremiah sermons, he commanded Hosea and Ezekiel to act out their prophecies. God spoke in the Old Testament era in many times and in many different ways. But despite the varied character of God's Old Testament revelation, I want you to know today, the Old Testament is still God's word. In our day, many professing Christians are troubled by the Old Testament its miracles, its violence. And many Christian leaders seem to think that it's, an, it's a losing battle to try to defend the Old Testament in front of our unbelieving culture. And so many today advocate that Christians should just punt on the Old Testament. In 2018, megachurch pastor Andy Stanley said, quote, Christians should unhitch from the worldview and value system of the Jewish scriptures. Friends, that's wrong. We must not reject the Old Testament. Jesus didn't reject the Old Testament. In Matthew 5, 17, he says, I came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. The Old Testament points to Jesus. It is the context and foundation of the coming Messiah. And without the Old Testament, his appearing and work makes no sense. And we must not reject the Old Testament, because as we just said, it's filled with positive, useful examples for us. And we must not reject the Old Testament because many New Testament commands are predicated on it. Paul says in Ephesians 6, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. It's a new covenant command explicitly grounded in the old covenant law. The old is foundational to the new. If you get rid of the old, the new doesn't make any sense. Friends, today we need to understand the Old Testament was God's Word and is God's Word and is forever a part of God's Word. See this in Hebrews. Look at chapter 1, verse 5, the next verse. After our passage, it says, To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Our author quotes the psalm, Psalm 2, and says God spoke what the psalms say, what the Old Testament says God says. 
We also need to know the Old Testament has spiritual potency. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And when our author talks about the Word of God here, he's talking about the Bible in his day, which was the Old Testament. And he says it's potent. It exposes our hearts. It lays bare our sin. Believing friends, I also want you to know the Old Testament is beneficial to us. When Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Again, the Scripture that he's talking about, the Bible of his day, is the Old Testament. The Old Testament teaches, corrects, rebukes, and trains us for righteousness and equipping us for this life. The Old Testament has tremendous value. We must not run from it. We should read it and learn it. But while it was a wonderful, good, and holy word from God, at the same time, we must remember the first words of the book of Hebrews. Long ago. The era of Old Testament revelation was long ago. And that doesn't just mean, well, it's been a lot of years. Now, the point is, the Old Testament revelation belongs to a different era than the era in which we live. Something has happened which ended the old era and begun something new. You say, well, what happened? What changed from the old era to the new era? Well, we find this answer in our second point, which is that God has supremely and definitively disclosed himself in the person of Jesus. Look at verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Okay, so there's a contrast here. In the old era, God's revelation was fragmentary and diverse. But now God has spoken again, and this time it's different. This time his disclosure has come all at once, in just one place, at one time, in just one form, in a human body. In a person, not merely a prophet. No, God has now spoken in His Son. And we're told that the appearing of God's Son has taken place in these last days. I don't know if you've noticed, but Christians love to ask each other, are we living in the last days? Friends, I can give you an answer to that question. We are. The Bible says so right here. In many other passages. Galatians 4.4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. What that means is, at the right moment, the moment all history had anticipated, at the right moment it happened, Jesus was born. That's the turning point in history. And Jesus said this Himself, Mark 1.15, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, we often quote the words repent and believe the gospel, right? But why are we to do that? Jesus tells us because the kingdom has come, is, is beginning to burst forth. As he puts it, the time is fulfilled. The waiting is over, friends. Time is up. The end has come. 1 Peter 1.20, Christ was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Christ's coming signals that the last days have begun. Hebrews 9.26, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Yes, friends, we are living in the last days. Now, the last days have gone on for a long time. 
But the last days have begun because Jesus has come. And in these last days, God has spoken in an ultimate way in the Son. And this has some really important implications for us. First, notice the contrast in verses 1 and 2 in the time words. Long ago versus these last days. History consists of only two eras, before the appearing of the Son and after. The era when God spoke by the prophets and the era in which God has spoken in His Son. I need you to understand today there is no third era. We await no future final capstone to God's revelation. There is nothing left hanging awaiting a future word from heaven. We don't need another prophet like Muhammad to be God's final messenger. We don't need another prophet like Joseph Smith to give us another testament of Jesus Christ. We don't need any other prophet, sage, guru, Buddha, pope, or whomever to give us a final word from God. And I want to tell you today, anybody who claims that they've got a new revelation like that is not representing God. They're representing Satan. Flee from such a one. Because, friends, God has already spoken his final word in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is not just a prophet. He is the Son, and we'll see what that means in a minute. Second, the appearing of the sun signals the climactic moment in history. It is the moment when the page turns from the old era to the new. But I want you to know it's not just like the page has turned. God has slammed a door closed. The coming of the sun is not just an extension of the old order. It is the end of the old order. It is totally concluded in him. And this is critical to the argument in Hebrews. Because remember what our author is concerned about. His readers are wanting to drift away from Jesus back into Old Covenant Judaism. And our author is saying, that's foolish. You can't do that because God has closed that door. The old era is over. It is inaccessible. We cannot turn back time. We cannot go back to what God has ended. And friends, we today must likewise not do that. And I told you last week, there are still people urging Christians to go back into basically Judaism. Resist these kinds of urges. Third, and I think most practically for us, because the old era is over, we must not seek to hear from God through methods that he has brought to an end. Today, countless people who profess Jesus are not satisfied that he is the final word from God. Many people today seek a more personal and direct revelation. So they ask God for visible signs or to hear audible words. I remember praying earnestly once, God, please let me hear some audible words. Some people try to interpret their dreams, hoping that God will speak through them. Or they participate in the so-called prophecy that takes place in charismatic churches, hoping that, like the prophets of old, God might give them a new direct revelation. And why do people seek such things? Because they believe that what God has spoken in Christ is not enough. It's not adequate or sufficient for the needs of each day. They think they need more. And so they turn to these things and they'll say, well, hey, you know, in the Old Testament and sometimes in Acts, we see these things. And that's true, they're there. But a handful of people across the totality of world history were miraculously empowered like this. 
I don't think it follows that we should expect this is a normative experience in the Christian life. That God would be happy to give all of us new direct revelation. No, friends, that is not what this passage teaches. It is fundamentally mistaken to believe that God has a new and better word for you alone, which is out there somewhere, accessible through the stuff of Old Testament revelation. Because the era of that sort of fragmentary, diverse revelation is over. God has given his final word in the Son. Jesus is all that we need. And frankly, to say, well, that's not good enough. Jesus isn't good enough. I need God to give me my own word. Is to sit in judgment of God who has determined that history flows in this direction from the fragmentary to the final, from the partial to the unique revelation in his Son. Friends, God knows what we need and what he has determined is that we don't need endless prophecies and dreams and visions and signs anymore. We need to hear his word about Jesus. Friends, we need to know today God has nothing else to say to us. So perfect is his self-disclosure in Christ. God has spoken his final word. All that we need for life and godliness is found in Jesus. He is the summing up and the concluding word that God has spoken to man. All right, but what is this revelation in the Son? How does Jesus serve as God's ultimate self-disclosure? Well, our author tells us. Look at verse 2. In these days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. About seven or eight things are said about Jesus here, depending on how you count. And these statements explain why he is the ultimate revelation of God. And I'm going to divide these statements into three groups. First are statements that explain who the Son is. They disclose his nature. Let's start with the last thing said in our passage. Look at verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Say, so why is our author talking about angels here? Because in next week's passage, where he's going with this book is he's going to compare the son to the angels. And so this is setting that part of the argument up. This is a transitional verse. But while that's the main point of verse 4, it does shed some light on our passage today because it talks about the nature of the Son. And it tells us the Son is greater than the angels. This exposes a lie that's been very common in Christian history, that, that Jesus is not God, that Jesus is just an angel. That's a heresy, friends. Now, I don't think the original readers of this book held to this heresy, but many people have at times. The Gnostics in the 2nd century, the Arians in the 4th century, the Jehovah's Witnesses today. Friends, you need to know this is false. Chapter 1, verse 4 says, Jesus has inherited a name better than any of the angels. And that name is Son. Jesus is God's Son. He is not merely angelic. He is not created. He is eternal. And His name, which speaks of His nature outranks anything angelic because he is truly God. Now, you'll notice in verse 4 that it says not just that Jesus has inherited a name greater than the angels. 
It also says he has become superior to angels. And that idea might confuse us. We might think, well, shouldn't the Son have always been superior to the angels? Why does this say he became superior to them? We'll get our answer in chapter 2, but let me give it to you now as well. In chapter 2, our author builds an argument from Psalm 8. You probably know Psalm 8 if you've been a Bible student for long. Psalm 8 speaks about humanity and says, You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. Psalm 8 is about God giving humanity a glorious position in creation. He's made us his deputy rulers on the earth. He's made us so exalted we're just a little lower than the angels. That's Psalm 8. Hebrews applies this psalm to Jesus. Look at Hebrews 2.9. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. See, the Son who is God, who by nature is more glorious than the angels, took on true humanity. He became one of us. He was so real in his humanity, it can be said that for a time he became lower than the angels. He lived as one of us. He died as one of us, as our substitutionary sacrifice. And having died, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and returned him to heaven and exalted him with the highest honor. Philippians 2.6, as though he was in the form of God. The Son did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because he humbled himself and died, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is God the Son who has taken on humanity. And when he returned to heaven, yes, the Son returned to the glory that was always his. But something has now changed. The Son is forever human. And as a man... Jesus has been highly exalted by God. He is a man who has become higher than the angels. And Jesus, fully man and fully God, now sits at the right hand of the throne of heaven, dispensing all of God's power and rule. And so our author here says, yes, Jesus is God by his very nature. And in his humanity, he has been exalted over the angels. That's what verse 4 is saying. Now, I want to just focus on the first part, which is that Jesus is truly God. That's, that's a really important thing we need to see here. This is an idea our author developed back in verse 3 when he says, He is the radiance of the glory of God. Our author says that the glory of God is like a bright light, the, the radiance of the Father. And, and the author says Jesus radiates the Father's glory. Understand, this is not like the moon reflecting the sun's rays. The idea is not that the Son lacks His own glory, and so He shines the Father's glory like a mirror. No. The idea is that what the Father is, the Son is also. Totally, perfectly, equally. One commentary puts it like this. The Son is a twin source of the light of God's glory. 
That's exactly right. The Son is totally equal with the Father and Spirit and Deity. He perfectly articulates all that pertains to God. His majesty, His excellence, His glory. Verse 3 develops this idea further, saying the Son is the exact imprint of His nature. The Greek term translated imprint here describes a stamp, sort of thing you use to seal a letter. Put some wax down and stamp it with your stamp. And when you pick the stamp up, what's left? The exact same picture that's on your stamp, right? It's a perfect copy. That's how our author describes the relationship of the Son to the Father. He is the exact imprint of God. He perfectly displays all that the Father is. He perfectly images God. You know, in the Old Testament, God said, don't make any graven image, right? Why? Because how are we ever to accurately depict God? We finite sinners. But God has made an image of himself. And the image is Jesus, the Son incarnate. Jesus perfectly images God. So 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, Christ is the image of God. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus says the same thing. John 14.8 Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. To see Jesus is to behold all that pertains to deity. Jesus supremely articulates what God is. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. The Son eternally existed alongside the Father, being one in nature but distinct in person. The Son took on humanity and lived alongside us, and those who interacted with Jesus beheld in Him the very glory of God. And Jesus, who is the Son, who has eternally been alongside the Father, has uniquely and supremely made God known. And so this is the first reason why the Son is the last word, the ultimate disclosure of God, because of who He is. He who shares the divine nature has lived, walked, and spoken among us, such that in Him, humanity corresponds with God directly. Friends, you can't improve on that. There is no better revelation from God than actually meeting Him. And that's what we have in Jesus. But these verses don't only talk about the Son's nature. Now we come to the second grouping of statements in verses 2 to 4, which talk about what the Son does, His work. And here we see, again, the Son is God because Jesus does what only God can do. Look at verse 2. Through whom also He created the world. Genesis 1 tells us it's God who created the heavens and the earth, right? And yet, here we see the Father created the world through the Son. John 1 tells us that as well, right? We remember Genesis 1, God speaks all things into being. He creates by His Word. Who is the Word? John 1 tells us it's Jesus. John 1, 3 says, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that made that was made. Jesus built creation. Colossians 1.16 says, By Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. 
all things were created through him and for him. We live in a vain world, don't we? Everybody wants to think it's all about me. Right? That's why there's like Instagram. Like, who takes that many pictures, right? Um, friend, I got a reality check for all of us. It's not about us. Reality exists for him. All things exist for his good pleasure. And not only did the son build everything, verse 3 says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now in Psalm 75, God says, when the earth totters, it's I who keeps steady its pillars. God maintains all things. But here we learn that it's through the son that the father does this. The son articulates his infinite power and in so doing, all things continue. Colossians 1.17 says, in him, all things hold together. But for the will of Jesus, creation would collapse. But there he is, upholding everything through the sheer force of his infinite might. And in this, we see that Jesus is sovereign over every moment that exists because he is endlessly maintaining, upholding, and directing all things to their appointed end. And so here's another declaration that Jesus is divine. He does what only God can do. And yet we read, look at verse 3. After making purification for sins, this one who is infinite in holiness has acted to purify our sin. We said last week a lot of this book is about how Jesus compares to the old covenant worship of Judaism, which was all about priests offering animal sacrifices to cover sin. Hebrews 9.13 says, If the blood of goats and bulls sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How can sinners like us stand before a holy God? And the answer is through the blood, the death of Jesus. Jesus is the sacrifice who bears our sin. He's not an animal like in Judaism. No, he is a true human who suffered for other humans. A sinless human who suffered for sinful humans. And who is the priest that presents this sacrifice? Hebrews 9 says Jesus offered himself. He is both priest and sacrifice. He lays down his life to purify us. And he does this not endlessly. Remember last week we said the priests were always busy. There's always more sacrifices to offer. Jesus does not die endlessly like the animal sacrifices. Hebrews 10.10 says we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He one time laid down his life out of love that vile sinners like us might be cleansed of our sin, delivered from his wrath, and brought into his family. Friends, that is a grace beyond imagining. And having achieved this, verse 3 of our passage says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the first of many references in this book to Psalm 110. We'll talk about that more later. But basically, after he returned to heaven, Jesus was invited to sit at the Father's right hand and mediate his rule and authority over all things. But as he, sit, as he is there beside the Father, reigning as a king, he's also our merciful high priest. But unlike the priests of old, he sits. This is a point that we'll see made more of in chapter 10. 
Hebrews 10 says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. In Old Covenant Judaism, the priests were always on their feet because there were always more sacrifices to offer. They couldn't sit down. But Hebrews 10.12 says, When Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus isn't just a better priest who offers a better sacrifice. He is a priest whose sacrificial work is done. As he cried from the cross, it is finished. And the one death that he died saves his people forever and cleanses us from our sin. And today, friends, he lives ruling, reigning, and interceding for us as our priestly king. And in all these things, again, Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. Because in his powerful works, we see that God's limitless power has a face. The one who created all things, who sustains every subatomic particle throughout the totality of the universe, that one has taken on flesh and lived alongside us. And friends, there's comfort in this if we have turned to him in faith, that we know the one who reigns over everything on that level of detail. And that means we can trust him with our problems, no matter how big they might seem because he is sovereign over everything to the nth degree. But Jesus doesn't just show us the might of God. He shows us the heart of God, his holiness and his righteousness. Hebrews 4 says, Christ was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. His life reveals God's perfect standard for humanity, which we all fall short of. His truth, his declaration of the truth tells us God will not overlook sin. And yet Jesus also supremely displays the mercy and grace of God in his self-sacrificing death. 1 John 4 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The ultimate disclosure of God and his character and his demand upon humanity is found at the cross. There we see the heart of God most clearly. His love, His grace, His justice, His wrath, and His mercy. His call to repent and believe. Friends, there can be no disclosure of God that speaks more clearly to us about who God is and who we are and what we deserve and how great God is than the cross. The works of Jesus ultimately reveal God to us. We come now to the last statement in verses 2 to 4, which speak about the destiny of the Son. That He is the one, verse 2 says, whom the Father appointed the heir of all things. The Son is the beginning. He created, and He is the end. He presently sits enthroned above the cosmos. And yet, while Jesus reigns over all things from heaven today, Hebrews 2.8 tells us we don't yet see this in its totality. Hebrews 2.8 says, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Sin continues, right? Wickedness always seems to have the upper hand in this world. But friends, Jesus is coming back one day. And the Father has decreed that all things are going into his hands. He will inherit all. He will bring in the new creation. And friends, when Jesus comes back, he is going to set everything right. He will utterly end all rebellion on earth. He will establish his unending righteous rule. And on that day, all of us and all humanity will give him an account. And friends, the only way to survive that judgment is to be found in him. 
And so here's one more reason why Jesus is the ultimate disclosure of God. Because he, the final judge, the one who reigns forever, has come to earth to reveal to us the one and only way of salvation in clear, unmistakable terms. He has lived the perfect life that we failed to live. He died the death we deserve. He tells us there's only one way of salvation. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And he tells us what that way of salvation is. Repent and believe the gospel. We need to repent. We need to see I am a, I'm a wrecked, ruined sinner that merits God's wrath, and so are you. We need to come to that realization that we have failed to perfectly observe his commands, that we have done what he has forbidden, that we deserve his wrath. And he calls us to turn away from that life of self-indulgence and to turn to Jesus, following him in faith, believing he is God in human flesh, that his death and resurrection are the only way to satisfy the Father and forgive our sin. That is the only way to be saved, friends. But as Hebrews 2.3 warns, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If we reject this amazing ultimate disclosure of God, if we will not bend the knee to Jesus as our Lord, there is no escape. And all that remains, Hebrews 10 says, is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. For it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Today, friend, if you have never come to Christ, I implore you, throw yourself on his mercy on the basis of who he is and what he has done for you. It is the only way to be saved. But I want to end now by speaking to those of us who do believe. Friends, we've got a great advantage. We live on this side of the cross. We live after God has given us this amazing disclosure of himself in the Son. Even the Old Testament prophets, I mean, it's tough to think of godlier guys than like Isaiah and Elijah. Even they didn't see the whole picture that God has allowed us to see, even if we're the most spiritually immature Christian. We understand more perfectly who God is and what he's doing than the ancients did. That's amazing, right? But we've got a problem too, which is, while the people in Galilee 2,000 years ago could see Jesus and talk to him face to face, we today live millennia after Jesus has ascended back into heaven. How can we access this ultimate word which God has spoken? How can we learn and understand Jesus and what God says through him? And the answer is, friends, that God has given us graciously a trustworthy and infallible record of the Son in the writings of the New Testament. And we need to understand the New Testament is the record of God's ultimate revelation, which is for us today. It's a wonderful thing to have. In the Gospels, we have a record of Jesus' words and actions. Praise God that we have that, right? But I don't want you to fall into a common mistake. Because Jesus is the ultimate disclosure of God, sometimes people mistakenly think that, well, that means all we need are the words of Jesus. There's a famous t-shirt that says, things Jesus said about homosexuality, and the rest of the shirt is blank. And the point of this shirt is to argue that Christianity really isn't against homosexuality because only the quotes of Jesus count. And what the apostles wrote, well, that doesn't matter. The rest of the New Testament, that doesn't matter. The only authoritative stuff is in the Gospels or the red letter sections, the words of Jesus. Friend, I want you to know today that's not true. The whole New Testament is the word of Christ. 
The book of Acts records what Jesus did through his spirit in the lives of his people after he ascended back into heaven. And the rest of the New Testament contains writings that come from Jesus' apostles, his authoritative spokesmen who speak on his behalf. Jesus told the apostles in Luke 10, 16, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. Paul insisted in 1 Thessalonians 2, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. So the writings of the apostles are every bit as much the word of Christ as the red letter sections are in your Bible. And even the New Testament writings not written by apostles, like Hebrews, they come from Christ through His Spirit to His church. Friends, all 27 books of the New Testament and every word in them is a reliable amplification and explanation of the revelation that, Jesus, that God gave in Jesus 2,000 years ago. And it is through this completed word that God speaks into our lives today. It is through this completed word alone that we can reliably know about who Jesus is and who we are and what we must do, which is repent and believe. But I also want to say today, not only do we enjoy the tremendous advantage of living on this side of the cross, we live in an amazing time where we all have personal copies of the Bible. And if you don't have one, please take one of the few Bibles. Some of us have lots of Bibles at home. Most Christians throughout history could not even dream of such a thing. And yet having the very word of Almighty God at our fingertips, how highly do we cherish it? When we hear it preached, do we come with listening ears and opening hearts, or do we come to take a nap? How often do we read it? How often do we allow it to examine our lives and shape our conduct? Psalm 1 says the defining feature of the righteous person is that he meditates, he thinks about God's word day and night. Friends, let us immerse ourselves in God's word. Both the Old Testament, which has great value for us today, and the New, that sets before us God's ultimate revelation, Jesus. Let us marvel at this amazing truth that God has not abandoned us to the darkness of ignorance. He has revealed Himself to us, becoming one of us. He has revealed His love by dying for us. He reveals His power and glory by rising from the grave and ruling over all things. And friends, He will triumph in the end. So let us regularly draw near to the Father through the Son by learning and obeying the Son's word. Because in Jesus and the word about him, we find all that we need for life and godliness. For as both Moses and Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God.